Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Good afternoon, family. Welcome all who are visiting and welcome everybody to another week in the Lord. We're at a point in time here where Jesus has been preaching often in front of thousands of people. He's been speaking about God's kingdom. He's been telling us what a kingdom citizen looks like. And he's been talking about the great mercy and compassion that our God has for his people. Even though God is unlimited in his kindness, his patience, and compassion, there seems to be a limit to his mercy. That's what Jesus is going to bring up in this occasion. The reason why Jesus brings this up, well, people were not showing fruit of repentance. So he says here in Luke 12, 49, I have come to throw fire on the earth. Yes, Gerard was right. There's a fire forecast. <laughs> and this is how it's going to go down. I wish that it had already started. This is Jesus speaking. This fire that he's talking about, what could it be? You know, he came to throw fire on the earth. Well, we know the Holy Spirit has always been associated with fire. You know, there are some associations. The fiery work of the Spirit within us. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, Jesus is called the refiner's fire. So he could be referring to that, how he's going to refine and purify his people. And we know that is accomplished through the Holy Spirit. And in all that, we could throw the gospel in there because we know that the gospel is a blazing trail of fire for all the reasons I said above. So this gospel, this good news that Jesus was bringing could not be established, but through conflict, fire, and division. Those are the themes that he's going to be bringing here. In Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, Is not my word like a fire? So that again, referencing to the message of God, the gospel. So understanding fire here as the word of God or the gospel gives us a key as to why Jesus desired for this fire to already be kindled on the earth. Paradoxically, however, the preaching of the gospel, even though it's intended to bring us closer to God and to make peace, it would also bring in its wake pain, sorrow, and division. But its fruit will be joy, peace, and salvation. It's a paradox here. Jesus then says, I have a baptism to go through, and I will suffer until it is over. So what is this baptism that he's speaking of here? We already covered 
the fact that Jesus was baptized in the beginning of his ministry, baptized in water. But he is talking about another baptism here, one that's going to be of suffering. It would be an immersion instead of in water, an immersion in suffering. Jesus was predicting his days ahead. He himself would have to suffer as that fire that he wishes would be kindled is unleashed on the earth. Does Jesus want division? He says he's going to bring division in the next verse that we're going to see. No, Jesus desires peace. In Mark 9, 50, he says, be at peace with one another. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, he says to pursue peace with all men. But he knew, though, that his ministry would cause division because some would not accept him. And so there was going to be great division and even sorrow. As he says here, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, he says. I can guarantee that I came to bring nothing but division. Contrary to popular belief, many think Jesus came to bring peace on earth. There are even Christmas songs about that. But it's really a misquote of that verse in Luke. His work, the gospel, really brings division. In Matthew 10, 34, which is the parallel verse to this, he says he came to bring a sword. The point is that the gospel message would cause dissension, strife, even war. But this division, though, would be the price to be paid for ultimate peace that comes from God through the shaking up of the sacred family relationships. And there was really no way of avoiding this. Jesus didn't want it to be this way. But unfortunately, real peace often comes after much strife and conflict. There has to be a shaking up. And that's what he says now here. From now on, a family of five will be divided. Three will be divided against two. Two against three. This gospel can have unintended consequences in the nucleus of our society. The family, shaking it up, dividing allegiances, kind of like sometimes what politics does. <laughs> but this is for the best, though. <laughs> Jesus loves peace. Don't get him wrong. He wants peace. But you can't have real peace if people, like people say, oh, we'll agree to disagree. That's not real peace. Real peace is real unity. And so this division is not coming because of evil or maliciousness. It's just that peace in our realm here cannot come unless it is through trial and tribulation that helps align our thoughts, our mind, our hearts to God's will. It is through the strife and tribulation that our own boxes that we've made up or presumptions about God get destroyed and broken down so that we ultimately can have peace with God. The human psyche needs to be broken in order for godly peace to have a hold in our heart. He continues to say, a father will be against his son, a son against his father, a mother against her daughter, a daughter against her mother, a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The impact of the gospel will be felt through the generations. This shows how the gospel really is the only way God is going to have a lasting impact 
on the human heart, on families, on societies, even on whole countries, including political systems. There is no other ideology, philosophy, or law that can change our heart as the gospel can, because it has this kind of impact. It shakes us to the core within our, even our sacred families. That's, don't be surprised if the gospel causes that, because Jesus says, that's what he came to bring. He, Jesus then turned to the crowds and he said, when you see a cloud coming up in the West, talking about forecasts, forecasts was on the Holy Spirit mind today. You immediately say there's going to be a rainstorm and it happens. When you see a south wind blowing, you say it's going to be hot. And that's what happens. So this chapter, as you can see, he's now addressing the crowds. When you start reading at the beginning of uh, Luke chapter 12, you see that this chapter presents a narrative that volleys between Jesus speaking to his disciples and the crowds listening to Jesus. So at this time, he's now turning to the crowds and addressing them. And we've already come to this, a similar passage in the past when we studied Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is telling them, you know, you know how to tell the weather. You're very adept at that, but you don't know how to read the signs of the times. That's what he says here, you hypocrites. You forecast the weather by judging the appearance of the earth and sky, but for some reason, you don't know how to judge the time in which you're living. What is he talking about here? Well, notice how he says, you can forecast the weather by judging the appearance. That's all we can do. Judging the appearance. How do things look? We can't really predict the forecast, but we can forecast a little bit by judging the appearance. He seems to be saying that learning how to read the times requires similar skills, paying attention to things that are happening in front of you. Adequate analysis of the times requires a proper interpretation of the signs of the times. And for that crowd back there, it also required a knowledge of the scriptures and what God had predicted would happen. Due to their biases, though, the Jews in those days were not equipped to do so. They didn't really know the scriptures. They didn't know how to put two and two together. So they remained in ignorance. They didn't recognize the signs of the times. And what sign is Jesus talking about if it's not himself? What signs is he talking about if it's not the miracles that God was allowing him to perform. The fact that people were witnessing things that had not been seen since the days of Moses. That's what he's talking about here. Those were the signs they were missing. They may have known the scriptures, meaning they probably had learned them, could even probably quote them. But they didn't have the discernment to tie two and two together and say, wow, God's Messiah is here. It's time to really repent. Their knowledge wasn't producing fruit. God wants to see the fruit of repentance. He gives us his word, not just so that we can know it, but so that, so that it can cause a fruit. And that wasn't happening here. Their knowledge was useless. At least... The knowledge they had about the weather was able to help them prepare for their crops. <laughs> it's like what James says in his letter. 
You know, demons believe, he says in James chapter 2, verse 19 through 20, and they shudder. They're terrified. But some people's faith are as good as the trinkets that adorn their shelves. Good for nothing. It's a dead faith. Jesus is going to bring about the importance of repentance in the next chapter that we're going to be looking at. He ends by saying, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Jesus wants them to make the right judgment. We know how we ought not to judge the motives of other people, but we certainly need to make correct judgments about what we believe and how we're going to act on our convictions. That's what God is expecting from us, a right kind of judgment. Otherwise, our faith is dead, as James says. Our faith is useless. Jesus is now going to make an application to real life in the following verses. He'll say, for instance, when an opponent brings you to court in front of a ruler, do your best to settle with them before you get there. Before you get to the court, try to convince this other person, look, I'm sorry, let's, let's try to fix this. Let's not go to court. Let's see if we can fix it ourselves without involving law enforcement or, or the judicial system. Sounds smart, right? I do recommend that, by the way. This is great advice. Humble yourself if you think somebody's going to take you to court and try to resolve it. Otherwise, Jesus says, He's going to drag you in front of a judge, and the judge is going to hand you over to an officer who's going to throw you into prison. What is he trying to say here? Well, Jesus is using this example to communicate to the crowds our state of affairs before God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, we're all going to appear before Christ's judgment seat. We're all going to be taken to court. And we're going to be dragged there, whether we like it or not. And there is no way to getting out of our consequences, the consequences of our guilt, which is death, as he says in this example. The judge is going to hand you over to an officer who's going to throw you in prison. Notice how guilt is implied. You're guilty. You're not going to get out of this. So what is Jesus trying to say? He's trying to tell them, look, guys, if you're wise enough and have enough sense you'll realize that right now you're before the Messiah, the magistrate. Ask him for forgiveness. Plead with him so that you don't end up going to court and then suffering the sentence. That's what he's telling them right here. We will have some serious introspection about our state of affairs and humbly come before God to accept this gift of forgiveness from his son if we realize the times that we live in. You know, these signs, learning how to read the times, was not just something Jesus was asking of that generation, but this generation needs it too. We need to correctly understand and forecast that, wow, I'm still able to try to get out of this issue, to beg this person who wants to take me to court. I don't want to go there. I want to resolve this. I want to take the Messiah's offer and find forgiveness. 
Because when I come before the judgment seat of Christ, if I don't have his blood on me, I am toast. I'm caught in that fire that's coming. That's what he's saying here. If you don't act now, Jesus is telling them, you will be judged and you will perish. There will be no getting out of this unless you repent. Unless we repent, we will perish. I can guarantee that you won't get out until you pay every penny of your fine. And of course, the implication here is we can't pay it. <laughs> It'll take forever to pay every penny. This line here, this verse should make us shudder like it does for the demons. But unlike them, we can repent and change our outcome. Amen. Thank God for his mercy. And that's what Jesus wanted them to be able to see, and they were not seeing it. You can turn things around. It doesn't really matter. The politics, the COVID, none of, all of that doesn't really matter when you've repented and you have the favor of God. Does it? It's temporary anyway. Here in the next chapter, Luke chapter 13, verse 1, 2, and 3 should be very familiar to most of us who uh, study the Bible with people because this is found in the discipleship study or in the study called, the old study called repentance. Luke 13, verse 1. At that time, some people reported to Jesus about some Galileans whom Pilate had executed while they were sacrificing animals. So Jesus deals now in these next few verses with some common misconception. These people, picture some people, right? Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He's taking, telling them about forecasting and repenting and all that stuff. And some people come to him and says, well, well, what about those Galileans? They were executed, but I wasn't. I'm not counted amongst that group. Apparently, some people had misconceptions just like people have today. We, we tend to attribute moral judgment to situations that we may not know how to evaluate. We, we have had our share of bad news, haven't we, in these last three years? And it just keeps rolling in. And, you know, it forces us to try to react one way or another. Some people say, well, well, that's because of COVID. Some people say, well, that's because of China or blame some other country. Blame Putin. Blame the Ukraine, you know, this is happening. Gas prices are, well, that's because of the, and we want, we want to be logical about what we hear from the news, but there is no logic. There is no one to blame. We're blaming each other. What's the point here? People hear all these disasters, whether by nature or human cause. We don't know how to react. We get upset. We need to assign a logical reason. The thing is, evil is not logical. Some people say, well, they had it coming. That's why it happened. And that was a common view back then. Remember, that's how Job's friends reacted. Well, you had it coming, Job. It's because you were a sinner. And Job was like, well, <laughs> what do you know about my life? <laughs> but people like to assume 
However, we're not really equipped to make those judgments. Our judgments can only come if we are witnesses to something. That's what God expects from us. If you witness something, then you need to know how to react to that. But the circulation of, some, of such kind of evil news and the presumptuous judgments that come along is what makes social media toxic to our minds. Talking about it without any relevancy to our own lives and assigning blame or just complaining to complain. And no one has any answers to this. And that's why I think people are so negative because there are no real answers, are there? What is the right answer? How should we react when we hear news like this? Oh, Pilate executed, executed these Galileans and mixed their blood in with their sacrifices. And you're like, oh my goodness, that's horrible. Why didn't the police go in there quicker to stop him? Or why didn't they do this? Or why didn't that happen? And we start to think about things. But you know, evil is not moral. We don't have the capacity to deal with the evil that occurs in our world, other than to plead with our God to deliver us, to deliver us from it, which is something Jesus wants us to plead to the Father when we communicate. After all, it's part of the template of his prayer, isn't it? Deliver us from evil. This is Jesus' answer to that. Do you think this happened to them because they were more sinful than other people in Galilee? That's the common presumption. He says, no, I can guarantee they weren't. But if you don't turn to God and change the way you think and act, then you too will all die. This is the takeaway. Jesus says, our takeaway from hearing terrible news should be there, but for the grace of God, go I. That should be our reaction. Man, I could have been part of it. Man, I could have been there. Man, I could have gotten hit. I could have been a victim. There, but for the grace of God, go I. We need to be thankful that we avoided such a disaster, that God delivered us so that we can have what? More time to repent and straighten ourselves out if we're still meandering about. That's what he's saying here, right? He emphasizes that we shouldn't judge the victims. Notice how people came to him. Well, what about these Galileans? And then they're going to bring up another example. What about those other people that the tower fell on them? Notice how Jesus cuts through all that. He doesn't focus on the people. He focuses on the one asking the questions. Well, if you don't repent, you're going to have the same end. Wow. That's Jesus' prescription to all this nonsense we hear on social media and all the news we're hearing. Is that how you're letting it hit you? When you hear the news, is that how you're letting the news hit you? This is the way Jesus says we should respond. Oh, there but for the grace of God, the lie. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. This ensures I will continue producing authentic, Christian content as the Lord allows me. Thank you and have a blessed day. Am I, am I ready for Jesus coming? Am I ready for that forecast, the fiery forecast?
Or am I just doing like everybody else, blaming this, blaming that, blaming the other? Blame it on the politics, blame it on the rain, you know, blame, blame, blame. Repentance should be the outcome of witnessing terrible news. That's the conclusion. And what is repentance? God's word version uh, says it right there to change the way we think and act. It's doing something. Doing something is implied in repentance. It's not just a thought process. It's not just an emotional reaction, but it's letting that emotion, if you do have one, become a conviction that results in, do, in you doing something about your view on God and you asking God to help you in your unbelief, just like we uh, read about when we saw the episode with the desperate father. All these stories kind of tell us the same thing, how we should be reacting to things. They bring up, what about those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more sinful than the other people living in Jerusalem? Here's another example, right? And he says again, notice that the fact that Jesus is repeating this is emphasizing its importance. When something gets repeated like that in the scriptures, it's just telling us this is important. Pay attention. He's saying it twice over right here. This is about not holding on to dead faith. Let the news around you shock you or shake you into waking up, into becoming sober-minded and doing something about your situation. And you might say, well, I, I don't know. How, am I, how do I need to be more sober? How, these are all questions that we could react, but I tell you this, in these last three years, I think I've grown a little bit in my faith because of these reasons. We can never think that there is not enough to repent of. Because there is enough. If God is letting you live longer, it's probably because there's more that you need to change to conform to him. So that's how I take it anyway. That's how I take it. And I'm not about to say, okay, Lord, I'm done. <laughs> that would be very presumptuous of me. Because that would mean, okay, I'm ready to go home. <laughs> Many people go to church, profess a belief, but to them, their faith is its like reading a page in Wikipedia. It's just informational. Where's the effect of it in your life? How are you showing me, Jesus? Don't just tell. Show. How is your life showing it? The faith is useless. It's just useless knowledge. As James says, they're like a body without a spirit, dead. But real faith comes from the evidence of the unseen. And that evidence, all the signs got put forth to show Jesus is the Messiah, should bring us to a conclusion. That's what Jesus is telling him here. Don't you know how to read the signs of the times? Can't you see what I'm doing? And for those of us 2,000 years later, can't you see what happened 2,000 years ago? Who was this Jesus? Was he just a man? Was he just a prophet to you? Is Christianity just something you do? Something you just inherited? This generation needs to wake up too because we can get comfortable in professing a faith and not really repenting, not showing the fruit of repentance. That's his message here. So he gives us another illustration. 
We got one illustration with the tower and all that, and the judge going before the court, but now he gives another one. See, all these passages are related. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on the tree, but didn't find any. Fig trees were very popular, by the way, in the times of Jesus and for that kind of climate that they had there. So the man was upset. He said to the gardener, hey, for the last three years, I've come to look for figs on this fig tree, but I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up good soil? Three years was a reasonable period to wait for fruit from the tree. I, I waited four years for my peach tree to bear fruit. I thought it was a dead tree, but eventually it started to produce some fruit. The squirrels ate them all. Of course, didn't leave me any. So now I got to figure out how to fight the squirrels so I can eat my peaches. <laughs> Taking care of a tree, you know, takes up a lot of energy and resources. So this guy was upset. Hey, you know, cut it down. It's taking up my soil. It's a lot of work. At least if I cut it down, I can use the wood for firewood, you know. But the gardener says, sir, let it stand one more year. Give it one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. Sometimes you need to give the tree some time. Some are slow to mature. Some may need a little more care, TLC. <laughs> so he says, maybe next year it'll have figs. But if it doesn't, then cut it down. See, this parable, this nice little compact parable, you know what it's about? It's about repentance. And it's about the patience and the mercy of God. But it's also about, what is it telling us? That God's mercy has a limit. Give it one more year. If not, cut it down. Okay, so this is, like a, this is the news that Jesus is telling the Jews. Don't just keep lollygagging around. Because judgment is coming. And they already knew that. All they had to do was read the prophets. They could see what happened to Jerusalem during the times of Jeremiah. And then when the Assyrians came and took them all to captivity, and then the Babylonians, they knew all that. They knew God was very patient and compassionate, but they knew that there was a time limit. So Jesus is reminding them of that here in this parable. So we can learn some analogies in the parable being made here. The owner of the vineyard being the heavenly father, the gardener, the Lord Jesus. The vineyard is the world, and the fig tree was the Jewish nation. The three years could stand for the three years of Jesus' ministry. Hey, three years and no fruit. The Jews weren't repenting. But the gardener says, give it one more year. Give it one more year. Because in that next year, the Holy Spirit would be poured out, and some stuff would happen. Right? And if not, then cut it down. And eventually it was in A.D. 70, right, that the Romans invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and it has not stood to this day. That was the last of it. So we can see kind of like a timeline here built into this parable, showing that God is merciful, yes, but those who didn't repent wore the brunt of the punishment because of lack of fruit. So this is for us a warning in this day and age. Yes, there is grace. There is mercy from Jesus Christ. And it has lasted 2,000 years. Praise God. You know, we're able to live under this awesome covenant of Christ. 
And, and God has awakened us. If you're sitting here in this audience today or listening to my voice, God has granted you mercy to hear this news, to understand it, to receive it. Don't ignore it. Because God's mercy will run out at some point, as it did for the people in Noah's days. That door on the ark, after it was built, it remained, you know, for however long it took Noah. Noah preached for 100 years, it says. But then, one day, God said, that's it. And the door was closed, and it started to rain. So all these things point to the same truth. God expects us to change at some point, to bear fruit. Us, we can only bear bad fruit. We need the Holy Spirit to bear good fruit. So we need to repent so we don't perish. And that's what the message of the gospel is for us. God sent us a message, not just a written one, as he did. It's not a letter he sent us or some written commandments as he did to the Jews in the first covenant. He sent us himself through his son and he showed us how much he cares. He showed us he's willing to pay a heavy price to reconcile. And we should be the ones anyway begging him to be reconciled, but it's the other way around usually, isn't it? By this good news, we are saved if we allow ourselves to be distressed towards repentance, not just distress. Everybody's distressed in this day and age. Ah, what is that doing for you? Don't let the distress of the world lead you to an early grave, but let the distress turn you towards repentance. Isn't that what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 7.10? To be distressed in a godly way causes people to change the way they think and act. Isn't that what Jesus said in Luke 13.1? When you hear bad news, what should you think? There but for the grace of God go I. I better repent so I don't perish like these people. That's the distress from God. Letting the distress work in you towards godly repentance. And that will lead you to salvation. You won't regret it. But the distress of the world, the one that you probably feel on a daily basis, if you don't mitigate it, it would only bring death. Let's think about how we can be distressed if you're feeling distressed in a godly way by being in his word. And the true fruit of this repentance is obedience. The first fruit, actually, that we produce, if we are allowed to be distressed in a godly way, is to turn to Christ, to turn away from the sins, away from our passions, away from the world, and towards the cross. And take that first step into baptism. That's the first fruit of repentance. The first in a long series of fruit, right? God expects us, expects us to grow. You don't just expect a baby to be born and, hey, that's it. A baby was born. And, and it to remain in that state for the rest of his life. No, that would be abnormal. God expects us to hit some milestones spiritually as well. That is the fruit of repentance. So brothers and sisters, visitors, any of you have something in your heart, you're feeling distressed for some reason, and it's not turning you towards a godly distress, I invite you to come forward. Let's pray about that after services. Let's get together. Let's huddle together in the presence of God and pray about that distress in your life. 
or maybe about the distress in someone else's life that you know, that you know, you see them, it's going to get them to an early grave. Well, let's pray that it's a distress that they can take in a godly way that leads to salvation. I'll be available up here with some brothers after services so we can pray. God bless you. Have a great afternoon.